Hello, everybody. Welcome to HodgePod on this episode. And we're going to be talking uh, film, TV, music, and then a little bit of sports. And I have Tom Locke from Vancouver, British Columbia, here on HodgePod. And Tom, welcome to my podcast. I'm looking forward to getting to talk about these three items we may be talking about tonight. Thank you. Hey, great. Great to be here, Rob. Thanks for the invite. I'm really fascinated by your career. You've had some quite uh, interesting positions in television and film. So talk about uh, what you did and what you do now, and then we can get into the uh, the fun stuff. Sure. Well, uh, I guess first and foremost, I, I actually grew up in Toronto and was born and raised there. And in 1984, headed west and ended up in Vancouver. Uh, before getting directly involved in the film entertainment business. I worked for a company called Ampex. Now, you may remember that company. They did uh, tapes. They were also responsible for audio and video recording equipment, very high-end type of uh, equipment. And from that, uh, I got an offer from a couple of guys used to work for Ampex who got into post-production. In other words, become users of that equipment. Mm -hmm. Now, for your music fans out there, if they see that name Ampex, if you flip over an old album from the 50s <laughs> or early 60s, you'll see recorded on an Ampex 350 or an Ampex 351. And most of it was mastered on Ampex tape back then at that time. So it just gives you a little reference for that company. So I headed west in, in 84 and joined a, a company called Gastown Productions. But we were really a post-production outfit. And we would do, at that stage, pretty well uh, high-end commercials. And some corporate video was coming on stream at that mm -hmm. time, and as well as some small documentaries. Uh, when I got there, we, we sat down, we took a look at our, our business model, where we're going. There was a lot of sniffing around, if you will, from uh, people from L.A. coming up here. And I guess as the great Peter Drucker said, the great business guys who I studied over the years, sometimes you got to take a courageous step moving forward. Mm -hmm. So we shifted our focus on film and entertainment. And the our goal was trying to post-produce some of the shows that were shot here in BC before they would be shoot and ship. So they come in, shoot the film, film go back down to LA, and mm -hmm. then they would edit from there. So we went that route and our timing was great. There was a new fledgling network coming out called the Fox Network. Yes, sir. And Stephen J. Cannell had had it up to here with uh, Universal and the challenges <laughs> uh, that he had with uh, some of his uh, TV shows uh, not getting any residuals. And him and uh, James Garner uh, got into some some battles with the station. So he said, fine, I'm, um, I'm going to go over to the Fox Network. And his deal was that he'd always have a primetime spot, maybe one, maybe two of them. And that, so we were shopping around some shows, and he brought a couple up here where he was looking at ones. was called Beans Baxter, which I thought was a really interesting show. We didn't get it. But then he said, well, we got this show, 21 Jump Street. Wow. And it was sort of like the Mod, the mod Squad of the 80s. Remember the Mod Squad in the yes, 70s? I remember that. that. So I, I, I'm reading the script of 21 Jump Street. And I'm going, okay, hey, good. But hey, I, I think we can we can pull this off. We can we can work for him. So his deal was this. Yeah, I was going to shoot it there. But mm -hmm. as he said to us, and, and right, my deal is this. Every morning around 1030 or 11 o'clock, I come into the, my room in, in Hollywood in the studios to look at the rushes or the dailies from the previous day. So. You get those dailies. If it's a Wednesday, you get those dailies from Tuesday. I want to be looking at them Wednesday morning in my office. That's from Vancouver. This is out of the realm of the digital time, right? So we said, we'll make that commitment. We know how to do this. And what we did was brought our people in at night. We processed the film at night, transferred it over the first pass to videotape, took that stuff, and we put it affectionately in what we call the fish flight to L.A. at 6 o'clock in the morning. Hmm. It would arrive from Vancouver, same time zone, 6 a.m., arrive at 9 a.m. in L.A. Courier would pick it up <laughs> over the hill into Hollywood and walk in for his coffee and donut. And there they were in front of him. And that's how he got the job. 
And that was a huge show back in the late 80s, early 90s. And you look back at some of the actors and actresses that were on that show. Johnny Depp, obviously a superstar in Hollywood, uh, many, many movies. Holly Robinson at the time, she's Holly Robinson. Pete, Peter DeLuise, Dustin Wynn. Yeah, yeah. And another name was Richard Greco. Another, those are the most notable names I remember from that show. Yeah. So what was that like doing that show? That was on the show, what, four or five seasons? Yeah, it was. And this is where I got to take my my uh, my hat off to Johnny Depp. One of the production guys over at Cannell Studios, because they have their own film studio over here. They built a big film studio here in uh, North Vancouver. And Depp really got recognized in Hollywood. Hey, this guy's got the chops for not just the TV screen, but they could see him going to the big screen. And he got quite an offer. But he honored his fourth year of his contract wow. with Stephen Cannell. He did not leave. And I, and I take my hat off from doing that, especially at that age, you know, and moving forward. So kudos, kudos to Johnny Depp for doing that. It was a really interesting show. Um, we, we got in it. We were new to the game. We got in. We knew that the key was being organized. I definitely had the people to do the post, to do the transferring, to do the work. But we, you had to handle what was thrown at you every day because there's always a hiccup because you're dealing with people. Pure and simple, right? Wow. You're dealing with people. So... <laughs> We're, we we got the the first five shows are coming out great. We got the first three in the can. We're really liking this. We we build up a report the post production crew that they had assembling. <laughs> it's going great. And then some genius from L.A. calls in and says, "Okay, uh, episode five. That's going to be episode one in, in September when we open." So <laughs> scramble, scramble, scramble. Seventy two hour turnaround and episode five it became episode one. Wow, that's <laughs> incredible. That's some good inside baseball stuff. Johnny Depp is a tremendous actor. I loved him in Black Mass when he was yeah. in that movie and also Pirates of the Caribbean that Finger he did. Scissor Hands was a great one he did. Absolutely, really, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, He is a tremendous yeah. actor. So another show that you did was uh, Millennium. Is that worked on as Millennium? Is that correct? That's correct. We did, um, after that that show, uh, another big show, well, we did others, Cannell ones. The beautiful thing about Cannell, we had developed such a great relationship with him. So when 21 Jump Street was over, it was sort of like Velcro in our room. The new show would come on, like Street Justice was another one I just right. think about, uh, right? Because Carl Reathers starred in that, and, you know, who was, you know, boxing star, <laughs> you know, in Rocky. Yeah. And that show went really well for a couple of years, you know, as well. But then, um, other people got wind of us. We became sort of like the the series choice for doing series in Vancouver. You know, we would come to our facility to take the gas down at the time. And it, it was really neat. And then what happened was the big one that really broke it was X-Files. When hmm. X-Files came and started David Duchovny, as you know, and so the, we had a five-year run year. They did the last year, I think, in L.A. because it company's demand but that went great but that morphed right into millennium and we just carried on from a business side point of view doing series work was much easier for us to manage on the day-to-day -day as opposed to doing a movie of the week where they come in and they, you know rough shot for eight days you're out the door and you're getting your win and here's another eight-day movie you know coming in so the the movies were you know sort of all over and this is a big big production where you could really sink your teeth in, like mm -hmm. uh, Academy Award type stuff. <clears throat> Series work was great because I could really handle and design our crews, when to come in, when to work. Now, <clears throat> I say that, but we also did Legends of the Fall in, from, in 1993, which went on to win Cinematography Award in uh, an, an Oscar in 94 for Jonathan Toll. So it was kind of a neat um, piece there, but that was a long you know, it was like a 40-day shoot and stuff, and they rebuilt uh, Helena, Montana, in downtown Vancouver, mm -hmm. which is kind of neat. So, and, and I actually lived on the street in downtown Vancouver. They built it on. So, the funny story is, I come home at night, and I got to walk through one facade to find the door to my place. I went through three facades to find the door to my home. Wow, that's... A, that's, <laughs> that's and Vancouver's become a pretty, uh, pretty much a a place where filming is done for movies. Uh, I was looking up uh, prior to our talk. A lot of uh, production and filming goes on in Vancouver, does it not? It surely does. I mean, never in my wildest dreams we, we made that big shift. I think I'd be part of something that would 
create a, a, a billion dollar industry and now it's multi-billion dollar industry and some of the things that have happened in the offshoots one in particular that is worth a worthy a note is the area of animation there are more animators in vancouver than there are in la wow that's a fact yeah so the animation work here has been truly truly remarkable and i remember when we started setting this all up i was involved with the the city here uh putting vancouver and la together as sister cities now this whole sister city concept came from eisenhower back in the mid 50s it's tried to you know break down the cold war and get u.s cities tied with different parts you know other cities in the world <clears throat> like san francisco and perth australia i just mm-hmm. haven't remember that and i think it was a great idea and then people sharing your cultures or if they were of like minds which la and and uh, vancouver very much so so we use that vehicle to start doing film missions or as i used to say spread your own rumors you know invite <laughs> to keep people up get them into town and show them what we could do and what we could do so it worked, it worked great and everybody worked together with the idea was that come to town there are choices here and as a supplier or a person working in the industry don't worry about how big the piece of the pie is you're getting worry about whatever you get you chew really well so there's another pie tomorrow and that was a big challenge for all of us in the industry one one more thing on the tv did you find you got more more of a rhythm more of traction when you did like a weekly episode versus doing a film yeah absolutely it was just a nice flow i would go into work in the morning go down go down see the lab guy everything get out great go upstairs and the transfer was done then they would come in so we would be in different parts of the show so there'd be the the show we're shooting that week if you will but they may be editing the show from the week before or afterwards so we had a very very nice flow and and it allowed us to hire our employees and not contract them so i knew i had the goods and i had the right people you can have all the equipment in the world you want right but if you didn't have the right team you know, it, you're, in, you're in big trouble because you're as good as your last foot of film. That's right. That's and, uh, sure. you know, 2023, we have all the luxuries of um, of the uh, technology and the digital. I worked in radio years ago, and then when I was interning years ago before I got uh, into it full time, it was uh, we had to, uh, like, splice tape and erase carts and then put them in and get news cuts and it was a lot of hard work back then. It's easier now. That was like you really had to concentrate back then what you were doing, get the splice right. So now it's a lot easier now. So Oh, yeah. Well, um, a good example of that in the early days of television, there was a, a gentleman in the in the mid-50s who was, who was brilliant in, in editing his TV show and why it stood, stood up. His name was Ernie Kovacs. Not a lot of people know of him today, but if you look up Ernie Kovacs, he was an amazing man. And he had an hour show, but his hour show took 40 hours a week to produce because he would have cutaways in it. He have a, you know, a little elf on his shoulder, which, you know, you and I can put in, you know, in about 15 minutes. Meanwhile, these guys are cutting tape, taking a shot from this, putting on his shoulder and making it look right. And wow. I mean, way ahead of his time and what he, and I could just imagine what a guy like that could do today for what he wanted to to see and how he could, you know, glom his audience. So he had a great loyal audience because they're wondering, gee, what's he going to do next on TV <laughs> we haven't seen? That's incredible. Well, I'm going to tease something for a little bit later on in the episode. Uh, we're going to talk Doug Flutie a little bit, uh, the great football player out of Boston College, had a career in the NFL and CFL and even the USFL, but we'll talk about that a little bit later in the episode. But another area I want to talk about is music and I love music and I understand that you know that you love music as well you like the 50s the 60s and the 70s and the 60s is really like for me the decade where you have a lot of influences in the 70s 80s and 90s from those groups and it's kind of like a passing the torch but it's also paying homage to the groups back in in the 60s yep well, you know, you bring up a good point. So, I mean, that music of the whole 50s, 60s, and 70s era was interesting. The the, the, the 60s became a, uh, a little bit of a, a maturing point for the craziness that really went on 
in the 50s because it was no holds barred. I mean, you had these renegade DJs. I mean, Memphis had its own. I mean, they had Dewey Phillips down there for Pete's sakes. I mean, he was he was his own man and doing what he was, broke Elvis, you know, on the radio and that. But they just went out and they did their own thing. But the, what it was, it was great about those guys is they were on the pulse of what the teenagers, this new thing called the teenagers, wanted to hear. So it came from all in from all shapes and sizes, and people start performing. They took a little gospel, little R and B, mix it with a little jazz, you know, little hillbilly music as as the country music was called back then, and put it again. Hey, what do we got? Let's try it. No holds barred. So it got a little wild out there, and the teenagers adopted it because hey, this is our thing. This is ours. This is not mom and pa. The big band era had its time. Now it's time for us. So it got a little wild and a little out of control, you know, come the, the late 50s, to say the least. And then there's a lot of breaking point things that happened that helped tone things down for the 60s. Case in point is um, little Richard decides, happy motoring, you know, I'm calling it a day. I'm picking up my Bible and I'm and I'm out of Dodge. You know? So little Richard goes and then you. Yeah, a real turning point, and it was a tough one, was Alan Freed had a very short-lived TV show. A lot of people don't know that, but that show got squashed when Frankie Lyman, uh, Frankie Lyman, the teenagers, Why Do Fools Fall in Love, came on the show, and there he was, a black man dancing with a white girl on TV. So that's that squashed that. That show was canceled two days afterwards. Then we had uh, Jerry Lee Lewis getting in a little uh, hot water, marrying his uh, 13-year-old uh, second cousin mm -hmm. so that didn't augur well with uh with the, the community out there and then probably one of the saddest things uh was february 3rd 1959 uh, when buddy holly the big bopper and richie valance died in that plane crash and that really hit the whole music fraternity at that time extremely extremely hard and then compounding that chuck berry had his challenges too. And so it was really in an uproar. But the, the killer, and I don't mean Jerry Lee, but the killer came with payola and all these other things happening at the time. Music going into the 60s. What do we got to do? We got to tone this down. So the establishment, guys are running the station. Things that squash guys like Dewey Phillips, top 40 music comes into play. Mm -hmm. Here's your playlist. Here's what you're doing. All of a sudden, I can't play. I can't break a guy unless it's in this top 40. So it really put a stranglehold on the on the personalities on the air. And it changed a lot. It really helped mellow the sound because they started picking what you had to hear. But what's interesting is what carried through that, for me, anyway. And in the early 60s, one thing about the teenagers that they took with them. When they went to concerts, they weren't there sitting and watching. They wanted to get up. They wanted to move. Right. And what was adamant, we still want to move. We still want to dance. I always remember Dick Clark's American Bandstand. Yeah. And the guys come up, what do you think of this song? <laughs> Two things. Was it? It's got a great beat and you can dance to it. Every time when they talk about a record, that came out. Every time that came out all the time. And people, that's why they wanted to do. So hence, Let's take a look what happens. 1960, Chubby Checker comes out, you know, takes Hank Beller's record, The Twist, has a number one record. Not only 1960, but it's also a number one record in 62 because the teenagers' influence of that music and then, you know, the uh, the, the, the hipsters, the parents and stuff, they got into the music as, as well. And the dance craze hit. You had the mashed potato, the hucklebuck, mm -hmm. and then the fruit later on in the 60s. So the dance wasn't going away. The dance became a real big part, an integral part of the 50s. The other thing I liked was the coming of age for females, as I call it. And the, the girl groups were large, became really large. Yeah, Arlene Smith and the Chantelles in the late 50s, and then that spurned the Shirelles who became big hits. But then we had the Chiffons, mm -hmm. the Shangri-Las. Um, and then, of course, we lead to Diana Ross and the Supremes as well. Phenomenal period of time. And then, all of a sudden, the Beatles hit. And the invasion comes in. But why I started talking about the late 50s 
is the British groups that came over and part of the invasions helped us in North America realize the roots of rock and roll mm -hmm. because a lot of their songs were covers of great songs by Chuck Berry, by Little Richard. They even toured with them because their whole impetus for getting involved because they were so taken by what they heard in the 50s, you know, on pirate radio and in England or and Radio Luxembourg or English Star talks about got them going. So we got to rediscover, you know, oh, the roots of rock and roll, thanks to the Beatles. And then post Beatles, we get into some of my favorite groups who say, hey, they get it. They want to beat. We got to be a little bit different. And then groups like the Rascals come out, um, Paul Revere and the Raiders. Uh, come out. Now I'm saying, well, our own sound, if you will, if speaking as a North American, our own sound comes comes to play now. That was pretty pretty cool. What an interesting time. But then other spins, you know, folk music, you know, finds its niche. You know, country goes even a little more. Guys like Johnny Cash are accepted all over for all his work in that. So all of a sudden, there's it's not. Black, it's, there's a little shaping of genres and crossover, which I think is pretty fascinating in that whole era. Yeah, it's amazing. So that's my, my immediate reflections of well, the 60s. It's well, it's fascinating, fascinating uh, the way you explained it. You had mentioned the British invasion, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Kinks, the Who, the Animals, the Yardbirds, Holly, Spencer Davis group with the 17-year-old. The Steve Winwood oh. as lead singer. And it's amazing when you think about a lead singer at 17 for a rock group, which is absolutely phenomenal. Gary and the Pacemakers and the Dave Clark Five and the Zombies. So you're talking some great groups that came over. It's amazing. Like the Kinks, the Kinks had some longevity. The Who obviously had some longevity. The Stones, you know, they're what? They came out with Hackney Diamonds now, 61 years later. Uh, they have an album coming out this past October. They had an album come out. So uh, it's incredible. Yeah, right. It's incredible how the longevity of these groups, and it's amazing that the Stones are still playing to this day. I think it's great. I think that's what's kept them going. Well, it, I think it is. And I think even a lot of old actors, comedians, and stuff, but keep them going is the applause and the stage presence. I agree with you. What was really smart, smart in the 60s to keep his show going Reluctantly at first, but Ed Sullivan realized that his audience out there, he could expand it with the teenagers if, if he could bring groups onto the stage. And I mean, he had some controversy with some of the groups, no question about it, like the Doors and stuff like that. But in the 60s with the British invasion, the number of groups that he brought on were phenomenal. Now, here's a great trivia question for you. Okay. All right. What group did, Ed, what British group did Ed Sullivan have on his show? More than any other British group. Uh, you got me stumped. Uh, you got me on that one. <laughs> okay, now here, here, here's the great story, though. They're on 18 times. 18? I have no idea. The Dave Clark Five. Really? Ed, Ed loved the Dave Clark Five. You, you know, I can't explain it. He loved it. You know, it, it was just, that was his group. He, he really, and he enjoyed the Beatles. The Beatles got too hard to get after a while. I mean, they were so big. But Dave Clark was always, they're always willing to do a show, cut them in, do whatever you want. Yeah. I think the Beatles, Amazing. when they were on uh, Ed Sullivan's show, 82 million people watched that show when they were yeah. on. That's, that's just like incredible. And when you think about the Beatles at the time when they were, in their heyday, they were like in their early and mid twenties. It's amazing. Just the, the fame that they got so quickly. It's just, it's mind boggling. Well, they, they were, um, they, they were amazingly mature for their age and, you know, being pulled this way and that way. Uh, they, uh, played in Vancouver. Their first, you know, Kenny, Kenny appearance was here in Vancouver in an outdoor stadium at empire stadium. So this is 1964. Uh, the whole show lasted 18 minutes hmm. because the fans went nuts. It was like back in the day, <laughs> raising the stage when Elvis, <laughs> you know, was here. It was crazy. Um, one of the old DJs that did that show uh, in in 2014, mm -hmm. we did a, a a 50th anniversary of that show in the same location uh, at the Pacific National Exhibition, 
And we asked people in the audience, we brought an act in like the Beatles and all that good stuff. And he asked how many people were at that show. And there's over 20 hands were put up. <laughs> well, you know, incredible. I, I live in Memphis here and I like, I like nostalgia. I like looking at nostalgia and they played here at the Mid-South Coliseum, which is not operable now. It's been closed mm-hmm. for more than 20 years. And they played two shows in 1966. They had 12,500 for each show, which was incredible. The tickets back then were $5.50, and they only played Ah. 11 songs during that set. And I think the concert only lasted like 35, 45 minutes. That's how – I mean, it's amazing. They only played 11 songs. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, That that, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, that was just the way it was back then. And yet – I know people, all people went there, they didn't feel cheated. I, I can't explain. It was just, it was such a rush to, to be there and, and see what was going on. And wouldn't different, that, different. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, it's a, just, it was just different era, different times, but it was really part of being, you know, being there and, and doing something that was unique. And it was for them. It wasn't their parents. It was for them. Yep. And what do you think about the Stones and the and Beatles? Did they have a rivalry up in their early days? Uh, was there a rivalry between well, them? You think? I I think there's always a you know I, I think this the Stones and the Who had more of a rivalry than the, the Beatles <laughs> yeah, and, and the and uh, and the um, Stones. They actually are good friends. They actually even co-wrote on a couple of things. The, the songs escape me now, but they're they're actually pretty good friends. And they and they respected each other's territory. I mean, the Stones were the bad boys, yep. you know, <laughs> the group, and the Beatles, the other, and and sort of <clears throat> Jerry and the Pacemakers were the peacemakers, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> you know, it's amazing the Stones how they've uh, they've transformed. They had a uh, their their sound in the '60s, and then they had a different sound in the '70s, and they kind of went pop in the '80s, and they really like they were stars before the '80s, but with the advent of MTV and contemporary radio and top 40 and rock and roll, they really kicked it up to another gear in the eighties and tattoo. You was the big one when they came out with the videos. I thought that was uh, their most prolific album as far as popularity, but their early 60s stuff is pretty, pretty awesome. Yeah. I, I, I really enjoy it. And they always ventured and tried things new. One of my favorite stories about the, the stones uh, was when they went and did the IMAX piece. So I went to see this, the Rolling Stones, you know, in the IMAX piece, and they actually broke it into two two sections. So there was a, a break in between, you know, to grab a pop or a beer or whatever, and then come back. So <clears throat> the the hard part for me in the Stones, as I would say, is they come on and then, boom, it's like larger in life. And there's there's Mick Jagger with six foot lips. You know, I was having a hard time <laughs> looking at that, that screen and, and seeing that. But I learned something from that piece, and so did they. The impact of, of, of IMAX, and sometimes less is more, was <clears throat> splitting that show. When we came back for the second half, all good songs, all great, the impact wasn't the same because the IMAX experience was still indulged in the brain. Mm-hmm. There wasn't that great ah moment. It's incredible too. You you have uh, Mick Jagger, Paul McCartney. They also did uh, collaborations with Michael Jackson in the eighties. So after yeah. they were also Michael Jackson was on a way up stratosphere in the eighties with Thriller. So so they had collaborations together. And then Eddie Van Halen did a little guitar riff for one of his songs, "Beat It." So the rock and roll was getting into the pop, and again more sync together and uh, produce some really great songs like Mick Jagger with Michael Jackson, State of Shock. That was a tremendous song. Say, Say, Say by Michael Jackson and Paul McCartney. And then Eddie Van Halen did that riff. And you had mentioned Dave Clark Five. Van Halen got a lot of their inspiration from the Dave Clark Five. Eddie and Alex Van Halen. Isn't that? That I didn't know. That's interesting. Yeah. uh, They're my favorite group. And they they have uh, another story when um, the Stones – in the late seventies and early eighties, Van Halen uh, warmed up for them on two occasions. And one was at the Superdome and Van Halen was doing their sound check. I read this, they were doing their sound check and Mick Jagger walked out and uh, Michael Anthony, the bass player for Van Halen said their jaws just dropped when, uh, when he walked out while Van Halen was doing their sound check. (laughs) 
That's amazing. That's 1978 when Van Halen came out with their first album. So I thought that was pretty neat. Yeah, so I always love like those little nuggets, how like rock used to form over time. So uh, what else about uh, the 60s? Uh, a lot of other groups that weren't part of the British invasion. Simon and Garfunkel, Bob Dylan, names you mentioned. Uh, Jimi Hendrix, the Monkees, another group was absolutely hit superstardom based off a TV show. Yeah. I mean, they, they, the TV show is almost like the Marx Brothers, you know? Mm-hmm. Go, yeah. go, go with long hair and do TV. But they were a hit. Again, timing is a wonderful thing in the business. It's happened with songs. It's happened with that. The Monkees just hit, my humble opinion, in the mid-60s. It was, it was just the right time for that type of cutaway type material because we'd never seen it before. So it's very interesting how that was done because it wasn't just straight on. It was cut, 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 and a very interesting uh, post, post-production post on that. Yeah, it, uh, they were a tremendous group, and uh, Mickey Dolenz has been uh, touring as well. Earlier this year, mm-hmm. I had uh, on Linda Groundwater, <laughs> and she's a big Monkees fan. We talked the Monkees, and uh, it was pretty incredible. What I want to talk about is the Doors. The Doors were a short-lived group to the death of Jim Morrison in 1971. But I always wonder what would happen with the Doors if uh, he had not died. I think they would have been a super, super group, even beyond those albums that they did in the late 60s and early 70s. Yeah, it's interesting. At first, I didn't think much of them. And then I started hearing them, and I started looking at the following. on, Like, you know, who is... What, what were they writing? What were they saying? And one thing about Jimmy Morrison was he spoke his mind. I mean, what you saw is what you get, the, the way he is. And he really transferred that uh, into his music. When he took the microphone, I guess the best way for me to say it was the song was in him. The song was in him. And yes, I think he could have gone on. I mean, What's always mystery about here when I think of Jimmy Morrison and, and Hendrix and, and all these guys, I think of the 27 Club. Are you familiar with the 27 yes. Club? Yes, I am. Yes, the, yeah. the lead singers are, are musicians that die at the age of 27. It's mind-boggling. Yeah, yeah so it is. And, and so between 1969 and 1971, we lose Hendrix, Morrison, Joplin, and Brian Jones of the Stones. Wow. Uh, yeah. Jo- Brian Jones. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. That, you always Just wonder, amazing. You, you always wonder why like Brian Jones would have still been uh, with the, with the stones. It's just pretty incredible. It's just amazing. Just the way things happen and, and how they transform. Yeah. And, and and that curse, if you will, has gone on. I mean, Ken Cobain. Um, and then of course, uh, Amy Winehouse. Yeah. Another one, 27 years old. Yeah, Kurt Cobain was Amazing. 1994. That was a shock as well. I mean, he'll be he'll be 30 Once years. To me too. It was it was just like wow. I mean they they transformed the they threw heavy metal out the window and grunge took over and uh, that album smells like Teen Spirit was just massive massive hit. It's just it's incredible how how groups evolve and then like sometimes they disappear and you never hear from them again. Yeah. Well, that was that was actually more common than that that's where it was pretty normal you know like your your 15 minutes of fame you got on the you know radio where you went i mean groups like the beatles stones bgs they were anomalies really to last as long as they did because most of the time they get year two three years together and was gone you're on other things yeah jim morrison died july 3rd 1971 in paris and it's just still amazing and he had a great voice range as well. I mean, some of the songs like LA woman, he really gets as, as a tremendous conviction in the song. And then other songs, it's voice range was tremendous in those songs. Yeah, I agree. Totally. So we're going to switch gears a little bit to sports and, uh, Doug Flutie, um, when I've been Boston in the early eighties, he was at Boston college and he took Boston by storm when he won the Heisman trophy. And then of course that hail Mary pass against Miami <laughs> on the Friday after Thanksgiving on November 84. Um, still, I still contend it's the greatest ending to a college football game ever. He threw the ball 73 yards. Jared Jordan ran all the way to the end zone untouched to get that ball in the end zone. But uh, Doug Flutie uh, career in 
the CFL, and while I was doing research, he had a he had a stint in the NFL. Then he went to Canada, and he came back to the NFL. But he threw for forty one thousand three hundred fifty five yards and two hundred seventy touchdowns. He played for the BC Lions, Calgary Stampeders, and Toronto Argonauts. So he had quite a career up in in Canada, and he was he up in your neck of the woods as well with the BC Lions. So what was that like? Did you ever get to uh, connect with Doug Flutie or cross paths yeah, with him? I, I did. One of the funny stories uh, with the, the whole BC thing, uh, I was down in um, Hawaii one year, and I got a hat on, and uh, the Lions had won Grey Cup, which is equivalent to U.S. Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I'm sitting in there, it's got BC – Guy comes right, taps you on. He's a great game yesterday, you know. And that play ten years ago is something else. I figure out right away he's talking about Boston College, but all he sees BC. <laughs> so I laughed about that for quite a period of time. We're there, and I and I watched Flutie play a lot. In fact, uh, we have a, uh, and his brother Darren was a hell of a football player. He was well, played with. Uh, he's a great football player. So. We have what we have here for for to help charities out and kids sport and junior football. We have an orange helmet night. The Lions colors are orange and black. Mm-hmm. So we have a hor- orange helmet evening. So we brought the two fluties in and on they went on stage and all they do is people ask questions and they fired questions at it. We had a totally impromptu wow. type of presentation. It worked phenomenally well. Pre-presentation, we're in a, a, a private reception and my, my buddy was heads up kids sport. And with that, and I'm a season ticket holder. He says, Tom, you want to, want to talk with Doug? And I said, geez, love to. <laughs> so I go over with Flutie and introduce myself and we're talking and everything. And what, what do we talk about the whole time? My favorite sport, baseball. Mm-hmm. Well, Doug was back playing baseball again down in Florida he played second base. Darren played short, and their best friend they grew up with played first base in a thirty-five and over league right. in Florida. And I'm playing baseball, and so we're talking about players that were, you know, on the radar. Who do you think's going to, you know, make it? Who's going to go good? We must have talked about this. Has got to be this book has about thirteen years ago, mm. and so we finished it. So great conversation. So on my birthday couple months later i get his picture in the mail and a shot of me and, and doug wow and doug's signature on it my buddy had put all this together for me and that was our you know our conversation but we talked all baseball that's in phenomenal I, I will tell you having grown up in the boston area uh during his senior season uh at boston college his his season rivaled, and he was up there as far as the press was concerned with the four pro sports teams. And you're talking when the Celtics were going through their heyday with the NBA championships. Yeah. And when you're going up against four pro sports teams and getting the same or not exceeding the uh, media coverage, that was that's pretty impressive. I don't, I've never seen that any other way in Boston since that happened. And then when he threw that pass against Miami in that game, that was just absolutely yeah. incredible. And, and I can say I saw it. I was watching that game on television. Yep. So I, I was watching that game as well. It was the Friday after Thanksgiving. And I remember jumping up and down, going crazy. And uh, he is still revered up in uh, Massachusetts as well. He's from Natick, Mass, as is Darren. They had some great football teams in the uh, early East, but um, – career at Boston College, and he also played for the New Jersey Generals um, College. He didn't go right to the NFL right away, and he played with Herschel Walker as well. And um, he was uh, uh, Donald Trump was the owner of the Generals back then, and uh, he played there for one season, and then he went to go play for the Chicago Bears, and then he came to play for the Patriots. So there was a lot of Buffalo. One of my friends in, in Toronto, I still go back there quite a bit, but he has a box of Flutie Flakes. Oh, yeah, I remember those, yes. Remember those? <laughs> yep, I remember those, and uh, they were huge, and he was just he just looked at Boston College. He put – what he did for Boston College, I don't have any scientific information on it, but I can tell you one thing. <laughs> the profile of Boston College was enhanced, like, 
a thousand percent when he was at Boston after his uh, Heisman Trophy season. And I will make a comeback at some point with new groups down the road, or I always, I always think it will. But uh, what, do you, what are your thoughts on that? Well, for, for me and the age group that I'm in, it's, it's, it's fascinating how even through the course of time uh, that the boomers dictate or something will come back. And as a reference point or, or to support my claim, you know, first I talked about the Beatles and that bringing back the roots of rock and roll that, mm-hmm. you know, the teenagers back then and the new people, you know, jumped on. But then I go into the 70s and what do we see? Uh, American Graffiti mm-hmm. comes out as a movie in 1973 and takes off going back to those roots again. Then offshoot happy days comes out as a tv show back to the roots again the spin-off laverne and shirley yeah comes out the spin again so it's it's always fascinating to me how things kept reappearing often sometimes out in need and i i look at the 70 I need some escape and take me back sometimes. Put a smile back on my face, which is the genesis for my book. Let's go back to those times when we talk about music and stuff like that, that and remember good things, we're smiling. That's really what it was about. And that's what I found really fascinating. So I look at today. The Stones are playing here in July, mm-hmm. in Vancouver in July. All right. That show is sold out. Wow. And I it's that show sold out. And 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 who is it? It's the boomers, you know, recapturing their youth for yet one more night. Yep. So that's the magic of the early days of music for me. Um, music today, and I think there's some phenomenal artists. There's a plethora of stuff out there now. Social media has been good and bad because it's allowed people to get a voice and get out there. But how many voices can you listen to in a day? Mm-hmm. The biggest challenge is... We've never changed the number of hours in a day, and that's never going to happen. So that's the challenge some of these new artists have and new music to become legacy. What we have from the 50s, 60s, are legacy tunes. Yeah, and, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, the 50s and 60s. Now, I remember growing up in the 80s and the 60s were the oldie station. Now, on the oldie station, you hear songs from the early 80s on the oldie station. So that makes me feel old sometimes. Uh, but it's in television commercials or you see shows and nostalgia is a big part of what we watch on television and they'll play songs on commercials for nostalgia or they'll play songs on shows and it brings you back in time. And now, you know, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, we can play music on our phones and have streaming services and listen to satellite radio and play Apple, Spotify. And it's really incredible. Just like you can permit, you can make your own radio it's 10 station. O'clock. You can make your own radio station. Yep. No, um, it, it, very true. And it, it's funny because um, one of the things I was very concerned about when I, when I, when I wrote my book was how could I match new with old and, and in, even in terms of technology, one thing we've certainly picked up from the millennium folks and stuff like that, and even ourselves, is our uh, attention span has shrunk. So I knew if I put out something, I had to get people in five minutes. So to write a story and write it in a mystery, so I keep people reading. Mm-hmm. And then when they got to the end of the story, like Paul Harvey's The Rest of the Story, I put in a QR code in my book. So you could scan your smartphone camera over it and get instant gratification and hear the song. And it was that innovation mm-hmm. that I used worked wonders. And it was successful. <laughs> it's going to sound weird, but I got to thank COVID for that because the people my age grew my demographic who the book was for. They are all hip with QR codes because they <laughs> had to use them in restaurants and they had their uh, vaccination cards. <laughs> they had those all, you know, in QR codes as well. Talk, talk about your book. I, you've mentioned it a couple times. Um, talk about the book and uh, what where where you can get it, and uh, what just give a, a synopsis of what it's about because you got me uh, wondering sure. about it. Well, I think first and foremost, and thanks, Rob. First and foremost, the book's not about me. 
I think that's, that's I want to make be very paramount about that. And it's been something I've been involved with for oh, going back, had the idea, if you will, about 35 years ago, back in 86. Um, but thanks to technology, I could really make it come alive and make it successful. Uh, COVID gave me the time to write it. Over the last 23 years, mm-hmm. every week, I write a show uh, for Treasure Island Oldies. And it's a five-minute piece. I talk about an artist and a song. And at the end, you sort of try to guess who he's talking about or what the song is. And then the host, Michael Godin, plays that song. So capturing that, is, I got bugged by his listeners, <laughs> affectionately. Tom, put these in a book. Put these in a book. So I said, sure. So my challenge was I've written over a thousand of these things wow. and over the years because one a week, 20 years. Yeah. And they're, they're, they're easy for me to write. There's just so many stories out there in background for music. So I managed to pick out the ones I wanted. And then, but I picked out the ones that also people could relate to that. And, and I would maybe set the table with something they could relate to as an example. Um, Weddings. We all went through a ton of weddings, right? right. You got the, the ceremony, got the speeches. But what was going to make the night right was when we got on the dance floor and that DJ better have his act together. Yep. So put that in mind. So one of the songs I picked had to be one of the first three songs you heard every time. And it's still today. Out comes Moni Moni by Tommy James yep. and Sean Dell. We're up dancing. But I told the story in a way where you could relate that. Oh, yeah, I remember going to a wedding. I remember that song. <laughs> so that's why the, the book's not about me. It's about these things we experienced and going through it or things we didn't know about group, like your Van Halen story about, you know, sound checks, stuff that's really interesting to people because people like the stories of how things came to be. So that's what pushed this. So it's about artists. It's about the music of the 50s, 60s and 70s, but written in a way that are entertaining all the stories are only two pages and you can open the book anywhere and and get the story and then there's the qr code with it so you again as i said before instant gratification listen to the song yeah and it's available on amazon worldwide okay so it's very easy to get on amazon worldwide and i have my own website uh as well uh, at mitstories.com. The MIT is moments in time, but mitstories.com. And and people could write me. I'm, I return, you know, emails, no problem at all. And some people just write and talk about the music. I'm cool with that. Music was an escape for me from the day-to-day. Proved to be quite the stocking stuffer this Christmas as well. And, and that, that's one of the things that's helped it a lot. But, you, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm really happy the the reaction that I've had to the book, you know, seeing people smile, you know, the smile on their face. Cause we start talking about the book, people just smile. And uh, I was getting a little down during the COVID times. I think a lot of people were, mm-hmm. but it was nice that, that, you know, really helped me pull the, pull me out of those doldrums, if you will. You know, it was a, it was great that it, it, it was there, you know, for me. How long does it take you to put a segment together? If you don't, how long does it take you? Cause I well, find that. When I write this weekly, I can do them. In a, in a in a about an hour, but I I think about them. Like I'll write out, say, Michael, here's what I'm doing for the next quarter. So in that week I'll do it. But the way the brain works, you think back. But, but always try to write. Oh, here's a song. What was happening in that time? What weird story can I pull out? For example, I did one last week on uh, a song called Yulesville. Yulesville is a hip thing, uh, on, uh, based on uh, "Twas the Night Before Christmas." But it was done by, uh, do you remember Kooky, Ed Burns of the 77 Sunset Strip? Yeah. And the, he was the, the cool guy. Uh, he did Kooky, Kooky, Let Me Your Comb and all this <laughs> stuff. But he does this Christmas song called Yulesville. And it and uses beatnik, you know, timing, beatwick slang, beatnik slang, and tells Twas the Night Before Christmas. It's totally offside, <laughs> but that's the record we played this week. But how I told the story was about shows, like crime detective shows that have theme had theme songs behind them. I mean, we used to watch TV shows, westerns and, and crime dramas, and we would sing the theme songs to them. That's how powerful 
those shows were back then. It was really just, it was just different, you know? And uh, it, like all in the family, you know, you you, you you could hear that theme song going on. And that was a um, identity. And that's what I was trying to proclaim, you know, cre- the creation of identity and what's going on with this stuff. Yeah, I can remember watching uh, All in the Family when I was young, seven years old. And I the earliest song I remember was The Yellow Submarine by The Beatles because just to the, the, the cartoon <laughs> that I remember that and that it's always envisioned in my brain. I've talked about that on previous episodes. The Yellow Submarine is like, I know that song word for word once they start singing it. <laughs> the Beatles, but uh, it's pretty fast. Total aside for your fans, like every year now, I watch this show, uh, one movie every year now, and it's called Yesterday. Have you seen that show, Yesterday? I, I have not. Is that a Beatles? Uh... That's the story about the, the guy gets in an accident. Everybody loses their memory except him, and he comes out and starts, you know, because he was a guitarist, you know, street corner performer, not making it. He starts singing Beatles songs. Well, that's fantastic. You should. Real? Oh, I'm going to have to watch no. that. I'm going to I'm gonna have to watch that one. It is phenomenal. It's just called Yesterday. And if you want a movie to put a smile on your face, that one will do it. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Tom Locke, uh, I want to thank you so much for uh, joining my podcast. We talked. Uh... I'd like to do one shout out, if I may. Sure. For, uh, for Memphis. And on XM Radio, there's a, a gentleman named Alex Ward has a show called Pink and Black Days. Alex really puts his time and effort in the show and brings back the, the, old, the old days of Memphis, some of the original interviews he had in the 50s and 60s, and, you know, talking like about Stax Records, for an example, you know, which is iconic, you know, to the, the whole city of Memphis. And I, um, I really enjoy his so- show. We've connected uh, uh, over the, uh, you know, the email and stuff like that. But um, you've got a great guy in that city. Yeah, well, I'm going to have to reach out to him, see if he can come on my show. That'd be great. I have Sirius. And well, I'd love to... to have him. He's awesome. He's awesome. And we've got to talk baseball one day. I'm still getting over a Tawny's $700 million contract. Yeah, that, so was, that, that, that is incredible. Um, that is absolutely incredible. But uh, uh, I want to thank you again for coming on. My pleasure, Rob. Thank you so much. And best to you and yours this holiday season, my friend. All right. And 